Um, this morning we're talking about a really strange passage, something that I avoided for years of my life because I didn't know what to do with it. I don't know if, if, if you guys were listening to Matt as he read this morning or following along, which I, I hope you were. I don't know if that passage just like struck you as like odd. Like, believers share everything, community, beautiful, and then God strikes one of them dead because they didn't give enough money. And uh, that's how it ends right there. That's how Matt left it off. Um, and uh, for years, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I just avoided it. Like, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't like it. Uh, it's, it's, it's about this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They, they have this property that they sell. They uh, give most of the money, it seems, to the church, keep a portion for themselves, and God strikes them dead because they didn't give everything. And uh, so that's where we're at today. It's, a, it's an event that shook people up. It woke up a lot of people. It steered a lot of people away from the church, put a lot of fear into people. Um, they didn't give all their money from the property to the church. And so then after the sermon, we're going to take an offering. And um, just keep that in mind. <laughs> Some of you are like, are you, is he serious? Where am I? Uh, Acts chapter 4, if you're not there, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you want a blue Bible, just kind of stick your hand up and somebody will pop to the back and get you one. Um, There's some blue Bibles back on the table. Acts chapter 4, let's go ahead and pray and uh, we're going to dive in to, in order to understand, let me say this, in order to understand Ananias and Sapphira, what's going on here, we have to understand fully what's going on in the passage before it. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Let's pray. God, uh, it is you that we want to see this morning. It is not uh, ourselves. We want to worship you this morning. We don't want to worship ourselves. We want to hear your voice this morning. And so we ask that you allow your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts, convict us where we have, where we have fallen, strengthen us where we're weak, encourage us where we may be doubtful. And through it, may our lives be drawn to Jesus Christ. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers, it says, were, in, were one in heart and mind. That word mind right there can also be translated soul. In some of your translations, it says soul. They were one, one in soul. Aristotle once said, he was asked what a friend is, and his answer was, uh, one soul dwelling in two people, which is pretty close to the ancient Hebraic, I'm like emptying my pockets here, the ancient Hebraic understanding of a friend as being um, a, a friend uh, as being one man, one soul. And so these are 5,000 people. Remember, the church has grown here. There's 5,000 people who are part of this. And they're described as as having one soul. And so this is this amazing glimpse into the communal unity that is happening here in the early church. Um, 5,000 people of different walks of life, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different ages, different languages, as we know from Acts chapter 2. All kinds of people, rich people, poor people, all sorts of people are together and something marks them and that is the fact that they share 
one soul. There's like no more beautiful picture of community, is there? Than 5,000 people sharing one soul, having one passion, the same mind, they're, they're, they have the same devotion, they're, they're thinking the same kind of thoughts, they're, they're moving in the same kind of direction in life. They share a soul. And then the, what we see then is the natural outworking of this. So look at verse 32, the rest of verse 32. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Of course they did. Because if, 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 if they have one soul, they have one, one passion, one desire, then they completely lose the sense of possession. They lose the sense of mine and yours. So if, so if you need something, I'm going to look at my stash and see what I have to sell, and I'll sell it for five bucks, and I'll give you the money because you need something. It's just this idea of my stuff, this idea of your stuff, it completely didn't make sense anymore because they're sharing a passion, they're sharing a soul, they're one in heart, one in mind that they want the best for themselves and they want the best for each other, they want the best for the community. It makes sense. Of course, they, they share possessions. This isn't forced community by any means. And I think that's really important to know is like when we look at the early church, we're not talking about forced commune where people are required to sell everything and they're required to live in a big warehouse and share everything and there's no, no ownership and and, and if you have something, well, we're going to talk about that. God will strike you dead. Um, but this isn't forced uh, communal life. This is the natural outworking of a group of people who share one soul. They have found something in Christ that they've never found in themselves. And what they're finding is, 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 they, is they find that in one another as well. They're all united. They've come together as one. And they want the best for each other. And what we see then, uh, uh, what, what comes out of this is in verse 34, if you look with me, there, there were no needy persons among them. So out of all 5,000 people, there was not one need. As soon as a need sprang up, it was met. There was not, no, no needy people among them. And, and here's what's behind that. Look at verse 33. With great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. The proclamation of the resurrection of the gospel of Jesus Christ remained at the very core of this. And so the point then, what we're seeing here, the point is not the fact that all needs were met. It's not the fact that they had this radical sense of possession and, and they shared everything. The fact is, is that people were having their needs met, the poor who, single mom, five kids, she's, she doesn't have enough food to put on the table, all of a sudden she, she comes to Christ, she's incorporated into the community and her, her needs are being met. Because of that, hearts are being softened to the gospel and the resurrection, the preaching of the resurrection is at the center, it's at the core of what's going on. So this isn't just like a, it's not just like a, uh, what would you call it, like a, I don't know, a network of people coming together to to share food and to make sure everybody's needs. But this is like rooted in the resurrection. And when needs are met, we've talked about this last week, when needs are met, hearts are opened to the gospel. Um, there, there's a, a friend of mine who regularly says to me that, he's not a Christian, he's very much so a skeptic, and he regularly tells me that the church is, see I still have things in my pocket, look at that. <laughs> it's just like a clown pocket. Stuff just keeps coming out. Um, he says that the church just preys on 
the weak, on the poor, uh, because they're vulnerable. It, it, a lot of my skeptic friends use this argument that the church just preys on the poor, um, which goes back to Karl Marx, the opium of the people, if you're familiar with that, that, that uh, poor people, down and out people, are drawn to religion because they, their life sucks and they're looking forward to the sweet by and by, and so they, they naturally like hop on to this crazy religious idea. Um, the facts, though, in America completely beg to differ with my friend. Uh, a guy named David Olson has done some extensive study on the demographics of, of church and the gospel, who's being drawn to the gospel and the church, who's being turned away. And what we're seeing in America is a tragic trend of the poor not being drawn to the church. The poor are walking away from the church in drastic numbers. You've, you go to poor communities, look in the churches, they're not filled typically with poor people. They're people that are driving into the poor communities. The poor are walking away from the church, and what the studies, and this is a, I think it was like a five-year, is this massive process that he did to come up with these numbers. The people he found who were being drawn to the church in great numbers are the affluent professionals. Now, that's great in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with affluent professionals being drawn to the church. We want them here. And many of you are affluent professionals. But here's what scares me, is when the church leans toward the affluent, when the church leans toward the rich, and is subtly ignoring the poor. Now we might do something for the poor, we might show some slides and something that grips our heart, and we're like, ah, man, the poor, let's go do something, and we give a couple dollars. So we, it feels better, you know. But when we're subtly, in, in a lot of ways, just looking away from what it really means to reach the poor, that's scary. That, are you with me? What we're seeing in the early church is that uh, the, those in great numbers in uh, lo the lower class society are being drawn to the church in great numbers. Those who had needs are going to the church. They're being, becoming part of this community. Not just going there for a handout, not just going there because they're giving away free food. They're going there to be part of this community because when you're part of the community, it's no longer just a handout. It's like a whole new lifestyle. It's, it's brothers and sisters that are gonna be there for you when you fall. And so they're part of the community. They're coming under the teaching of the resurrection and their, their hearts are being opened to the gospel and in great numbers, the poor are coming to Christ. And it's also important to note that it's not just the poor that are in the church, but some of the most influential, uh, some of the most affluent people in, uh, in Roman society are also turning to the church. And then we see this beautiful thing that's happening in the end of Acts chapter 4 right here. Look at verse 34 again. There were no needy persons among them from time to time, which that, that, that phrase time to time can also be translated uh, as it was necessary. From time to time, those who owned, uh, lost my spot, from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who has need. Now, let me give you like a quick overview of the garden. This is sort of a state of the garden address. And 
like, like I said, like literally over half of our folks are gone today. So I wish they were all here, but maybe say a prayer and they'll listen to the podcast and they can hear this uh, because this is important. A little state of the garden address. Our business, our, our, the, the purpose we exist, our mission is to transform people through the gospel into community and then unleash them into the world around us. That's why we exist, to transform people, for people to come here who are broken, who are greedy, who are needy, who are hurting, ugly, nasty people with problems to come here. I, know, I spoke with a guy in Austin. His slogan for his church is, no perfect people allowed. That's it. Like, no perfect people allowed. If you're perfect, stay away from here. Uh, you're not going to fit in, as we can tell from the way I just led that last song. Like, absolute imperfection. What better song to mess up on, though, was the song about forgiveness and that God's better than that and all that kind of stuff. But it's the one song that Andrea wanted to practice, and I said, now nah, we got it. <laughs> right? Um, uh, wow, sidetrack, lost my thought. Come on, Pastor. Come on now. Um, we don't want perfect people. We want people who are screwed up. They come here, they, they're under the teaching of the resurrection. They're in a gospel community where the resurrection is being lived out in the way that we love, in the way that we serve, and lives then are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are incorporated into community, and then, that's not the end. The end is we unleash people into the city and into the world around us. So in great numbers, we will be unleashing you into the future. Some, that means you'll still technically be part. Others, it means you're going to go to the other side of the world and be unleashed in a way that you never dreamed possible. Now, where we're at, right, here's the state of the garden address, is we have more heart than we do capacity. Right? We have more heart and passion than we do people and money to pull it off. A, a friend of mine who's part of the garden um, said uh, the, the, his only critique about this church, and he's not here today to defend himself, the only critique about his church, this church is that we actually think we can change the world. And he said we're, we're borderline crazy. And I agree. Like, I, I submit that he is right. I think we are borderline crazy. We, can, we think that we can change the city of Baltimore and that we can change the world. Is anybody with me here? Amen. I mean, do we really think that? I think we do. Like, where are the Christians who want to stand up and who want to say, like, we will follow Christ to the ends of the earth? I'll tell you where they're at. They're right in this room. There's some of you guys, like some of the most passionate people here. We've got hearts that are ready to move and to jump and to transform this city. And it's going to happen. I really believe that. Last week I talked about reaching 0.02% of Baltimore, 124 people. When everybody's here, we're already about halfway there. All right, so we're, we're on our way. Um, I think, I submit that this fall we could see that happen. We could see 0.02% of Baltimore transformed by the gospel, incorporated into the life of community, being unleashed into the world around us, and then we'll go from there. And maybe, maybe 50% next, I don't know. We'll jump it up. The thing is, is this. It's not about growing an institution. C.S. Lewis says, as the body grows, the more the body can do. 
So the only way we can pull off what it is that God's calling us to is if we embrace this crazy life that we see in the early church of people who are authentically following Christ, sharing everything. The Lord's adding to their number every day, and the more the body grows, the more they can unleash into the city and the world around them, and the world's transformed. And the world was transformed by these people. So why don't we believe that God can use us to change the world? Eh? <laughs> right? All right. I don't know if you guys are with me. Come on. Slap somebody and say, I'm going to change the world. Woo! Yes, thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Andrea. We need to like, Andrea and John and I were talking about uh, different preaching and worship styles, and we're going to incorporate. I was preaching at a church on North Avenue, and uh, I just started my sermon. I said like the opening lines, and one, some guy stood up. He stood up and he was like, "Come on, pastor!" And I'm like, "I'm I'm coming. Like I'm about to say it." And so I'm like, we're, I'm talking it through, I'm working it through. And then I pause to think. And he's like, take your time. I'm like, I'm, I'm taking my time. Yeah. So slap somebody and say, we're going to change the world. Amen, brother. Woo. Take your time. Take What's happening in the early church? Large numbers are being drawn to the gospel the lower classes of society are being drawn. It's not simply the poor, but the affluent, the most amazing, intellectual, influential, affluent people in, in the empire are being drawn. And this is what's happening in verse 34 and 35 that we just read. There's no needy persons among them. From time to time, whenever it was necessary, this isn't forced. We've got to understand that. This isn't like forced community. This is, this is natural community. It's natural generosity. When there was a need, it was like, man, what do I have that I can sell so I can meet that need? Because that's not as important as you getting what you need. And uh, then we see in verse 36 this illustration, this story that Luke give, gives us. <clears throat> Joseph, it says, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Man owns a property, sells it, there's a need, brings it, and he, he lays it down at the apostles' feet. By the way, I look forward to the time when somebody in the garden sells their vacation home in Ocean City, gives the money to the church, and with that money we take it and we restore three row houses and give home ownership to low-income families. I mean, is that possible? Of course it is. We can see this kind of stuff. And we are seeing it in small ways, and we're going to see it in larger ways. We're going to see more and more of it, and I look forward to that. Or maybe we supply 100 single moms or 1,000 single moms with groceries. Who knows? Maybe we'll do both. Three row houses and groceries. Now, as most of you know, many of you know, uh, some of you may not, there were no chapter divisions originally in the, in, in the original manuscripts, in the original text. It was, there was no punctuation. It was just like, 
top left of the page, or yeah, top left of the page, to the bottom right of the page, words, no chapter divisions, nothing. I wish they didn't put a chapter division right here from 34 to 35. Like, there should not be a chapter division there. We need to move 35 to somewhere else. I don't know. This is one flow. This is one story. The, the reason, I believe the only reason Luke gives us the story of Joseph selling his property in Ocean City and bringing the money to the apostles and meeting needs is to uh, set us up now for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Because what's happening here is Ananias and Sapphira are watching this. They see Joseph sell the property and bring the money. They, 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 maybe they see the praise that he gets, the pat on the back that he gets. Maybe they see the single mom with five kids come up and wrap her arms around him and just embrace him in tears because finally her needs are being met by this generous man. And they want that. They want that kind of praise. They want to be seen as generous. They want to be seen as spiritual. They want to be seen as radical. They want that. And so this is what we see happen. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but uh, brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. They do the same thing that Joseph does. They fought, the, the custom is, if you sell a property, bringing it to the apostles' feet is, just, is this symbol of giving it to the church, trusting the, the leadership of the church to, to distribute it properly. They follow the same custom. They follow that flow that they saw Joseph do. The difference is, is they keep back some of it for themselves. We, we don't know how much. Could be a lot. Could be a little. They keep back some of it for themselves. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your own disposal? What made you do, think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. What he's saying is this, and this is important. This is, this is it. Ananias, wasn't the money yours? Wasn't it at your own disposal? Meaning power? Didn't you have power over this money? over the land. You didn't have to sell your property. You didn't have to do it. You could have kept it. That's fine. You didn't have to give, after you sold it, you didn't have to give the money to the church. That's fine. But what you did was not fine. Taking the money, pretending like you're giving the whole thing, and keeping back part of it for yourself. You have not lied to men but you have lied to God. At this point, Ananias swallows hard. The, the great sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not the fact that they, that they did not give enough money. I mean, it's clear they didn't have to give a penny. That was fine. They didn't have to sell the property. The great sin 
of Ananias and Sapphira is the fact that they were pretenders. They were pretending to be like Joseph, the Levite. They, were, they wanted to be seen like Joseph. They wanted to be seen as spiritual. They wanted to be seen as generous. And so they do something that in some ways looks generous, but in, the, in, in all reality, their heart is deceptive. They have no love in their heart. They just want the applause of men. And they are pretending. They're moving along through the church as pretenders. Verse 4. Didn't it belong to you after it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money your, at your own disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to God or to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all uh, who heard what had happened. Then the young, man came, uh, the young men came, wrapped up his body, carried him out. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked, Tell me. Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? And at this point, we're all thinking, please tell the truth. Like, don't lie. Uh, yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to, her, said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of God? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down and died at his feet. Then the young, the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. God killed them on the spot for pretending. There is no room in the early church for pretenders, for fakes. The early church is in this crucial moment where if, if this is allowed and pre pretending is allowed, if it goes on, it is going to stop the unstoppable church. The church will not be unstoppable if pretenders take over, take root, and take over. If pretenders take over a church, and maybe some of us have seen this happen in the past, if pretenders take over a church, the Spirit of God leaves the church. Because now there is the spirit of hypocrisy, the spirit of deceit that's guiding the church, that's guiding their religion. And the Spirit of God leaves, and the church is squashed. We, we see it all the time in church communities. It, what, we see, what we're seeing in the early church is that pretending was not allowed to the point where God just on the spot, their hearts stopped beating. Done. Woo! There's like no way to read around that. <laughs> you know? I, I was reading one theologian and he was like, probably what happened was they were so filled with anxiety and fear that they had a heart attack and died on the spot. God killed them on the spot for pretending. I don't see any way around that. Removed them from the church. Now, God may not kill you on the spot for pretending. <laughs> um, I do. I, I believe this. This is this is where I believe. This is where I fall. Uh, the church was at an extremely crucial moment in history. Um, we, it was clear that they were pretenders. Uh, 
had to be, there had to be a very strong statement sent through all of the empire that pretending is not going to be part of the church. And we see that fulfilled. We see that what happened was fear was struck. Verse 13, no one else dared join them. And we're going to talk about that in, in a little bit. So pretenders, people that wanted to pretend, stayed away. They didn't join them. Um, someone asks for your help. And uh, you tell them that you are busy, you've got too much going on, and uh, you can't give them a hand. And you go home, and for the next eight hours, you surf the web. And you want to be seen as a servant. You're pretending. You want to be seen as generous. You talk a lot about generosity and giving radically, but the reality is, is that you're stingy. And you don't, you don't actually have the faith to believe that God will provide for you if you need it. Um, most Christians, statistically, most Christians talk about tithing. Statistically, Christians give less than 2% of their income, not to the church, but period, to anything. Most Christians talk about tithing, the discipline of tithing, and most Christians give less than 2% of their income away. Tell me that we don't have a pretending problem in American Christianity today. Claim, claim that you love people, you know of a need, yet you intentionally look the other way, you ignore it, you try not to look, P put your mind in a different place so you don't have to think about it, and yet you say you're a loving person, that you want to love the least of these. You want to be seen as spiritual, but you're not. You've got to stop pretending. Stop lying to God. When pretenders take over the church, the church dies. Now, God may not kill you on the spot. Um, I do believe Ananias and Sapphira uh, were a point being made that has shot through history uh, and, has, and it still sits with us hard today. But, over time, your faith will fizzle out. You, can't, you cannot pretend for long. You can't live a life of pretending. Over time, your faith will fizzle out and you will drift away. Or, you repent. You repent of the lying, of the pretending of the darkness that really exists deep within you that you're not even willing to admit yourself. You repent, you, you turn. Um, we, we talk about transparency. When I was a youth pastor, I, I, uh, we did a whole series on transparency. 
which is one of the core values of the garden. And uh, we did a series with our teens on transparency. And um, what we found over like a four week period was like all 80 of them started uh, um, showing their anger more, started like dropping the F-bomb whenever they could. Uh, if, they didn't, if they felt like um, just being sour, they were sour. Um, and so we were talking to them, and the leadership, we were talking about them among ourselves, and then we were talking with the, the teens. And what we found was that they were actually trying to live out what we were teaching. They were like, we're trying to be transparent. Like, I come and I'm upset, so I'm just being upset. You know, I'm, I, I don't like this person, and so I'm not going to pretend like I like them. I'm going to be real. I don't want to be inauthentic. Like, they really were trying to live out what we were talking about, what we were preaching on. They were trying to be transparent and authentic, and, and they were, but what, what was eye-opening to me was that, was that uh, what was really in them was anger and bitterness and rage. And so when they took off their clothes, so to speak, all that came out was just rage and bitterness and ugliness. And they, so they were like, yeah, we're going to be a great, transparent, authentic youth ministry where you walk in and it's cold and ugly and everybody hates each other and you're not welcomed because I'm not going to welcome them if I don't feel like it. You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. Like, and so it made me think, now what is transparency? What is Christian, like authentic, biblical Christian transparency? What does it mean to be authentic? Um, 1 John 2, 4 says, says this, The man who claims to know him but does not do what he says is a liar. And the root of lying is found where? In the devil. On a more social standpoint, it's found in your own, your own insecurities. You're, you're insecure. And so you lie to yourself about who you really are. You make up something. You try to be someone else. And that turns into some sort of warped, fake identity of who you are. And what we see in our culture is that we have more pretenders than ever inside the church and outside the church. There are more pretenders than ever. And I believe it's because we've lost truth. We've walked away from the idea of truth. And now that we no longer have truth, we no longer have identity. We don't know who we are anymore. We've lost our identity completely. And so now we make up our identity, which means we look to this person and this band and that guy, and then when this person and this band and that guy let you down, you're back to no identity. So then you find your identity in this political party and in this movement and in this position, and then over time as this political party gets more and more, let's not talk about political parties right now, um, as this position proves false, all of a sudden, you're, you're back to no identity. And so we're constantly like searching then 
for, for our identity. Who, we, who are we? And so then we come to the church and we, we try to find identity in each other. We try to find an identity maybe in the pastor or the, the church itself or something like that. And, and we're just still like creating identities for ourselves based on our own insecurities. We begin lying to ourselves about who we are, who we truly are. And it creates like this weird pretending kind of... And so then when we talk about transparency, the reason that all of this like rage comes out, like you, typically, think about it, when we, if you told a group of people, I want you to be transparent, what are the chances that all of a sudden they're going to become more loving, more gracious, more forgiving, more beautiful? I mean, chances are, you tell a group of people to be transparent, it's all hell's going to break loose. And it's because I really believe that we, we are so locked into this like, question of who we are it creates so much angst. There's so much tension there. We're so embittered by it. We're, we're just filled with rage. We're filled with, we're filled with brokenness, bitterness. So where do we go from here? What does repentance look, look like? Repentance looks, looks like this. When, when you realize that you have been lying to yourself about your very identity, who, who you are at the core, and that's created sort of just this ongoing search for identity and, and it, it leads to just a life of, of lies, a life of pretending. And you're not even sure who you are anymore. Repentance is to, is to repent of the fact that you have been seeking your own identity, that you have been seeking your own salvation and find your identity in Jesus Christ. It's to find your identity in the fullest human that ever lived. And this is what I would submit, is we are created in the image of God. And so then to be human is to what? Reflect God's image. And the less and less, or the more and more we do not reflect God's image, the less human we become. The less identity that we have as a human being. And so if we begin then to look at Christ who fully reflected the image of God and not only just admire him, but take his person, his identity on ourselves and find our identity in Christ, we become more fully human. We begin to reflect the image of God. And that is transparency. That is authentic. We want to be authentic human beings. We want to be transparent human beings. And that is finding our humanity in Christ, our identity in Christ. And some of you might have to pray, God, I've been seeking my own salvation, my own identity, and I, I'm, I'm done seeking that. And I walk away from that, and I'm finding my, my salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 13, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. No one else dared join them. Nevertheless, more and more people were added to their number. So who didn't join them? The people like Ananias and Sapphira. People that were pretenders. 
but as a result of their authenticity, as a result of their transparency, truly following Christ and the pretenders no longer pretending, more and more people now were added to their number. More and more people were brought into a saving understanding of Jesus, who Jesus Christ is. Now, about a year ago, I, I said this, and we've seen some fruit since then. Um, skeptics are completely welcome at the garden. Completely welcome. You are uh, questioning things. You're not sure about things. You're uh, confused about the scriptures, what Christians really believe. Do you really believe that God killed Ananias and Sapphira? We can talk more about that later if that like sits uneasy with you. Um, your, skeptics are completely welcome to just come and explore. Non-Christians, people who say, I don't believe in Jesus, are completely welcome in our community to come. And they're like, I don't, don't think I get it. Uh, certainly don't believe this crazy stuff. Um, but I kind of like these people. Something's intriguing about their community, and I'm going to hang out. You are completely, completely welcome. Regenerate people who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ are completely welcome to come and, and continue the journey. Pretenders are not welcome. Pretenders will kill us. You come here and you pretend, you do your thing, and there is no generosity in your heart, there is no love in your heart, you'll kill us. You'll kill the movement of the gospel in the garden, in the, in the city. So what do we do? Re repent of your lies, trust Christ to move where you haven't believed he would move, and follow him in every corner of your life. What we see unfolding in this unstoppable church in Acts is that pretenders stayed away but more and more people who were pretending, repented of their pretending, and said, I'm, I'm going to be real. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus Christ. And more and more were added to their number. When we take off the shackles of pretending, when we get naked in front of God and one another, and we confess our sins knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we have found freedom. It's true freedom. Um, let's do this. I want to close with some prayer and then I want to take some quick questions. Can we do that? Let's pray. God, we do repent of our falsehood. We repent of our, our lies, our pretending. We want to be the kind of, of church that we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37, where all needs are being met. The gospel of Christ is proclaimed uh, where lives are being changed, where 2,000 are added to their number. God, lead us to become that kind of authentic community, individually, corporately, in Baltimore. Lead us to transparency. Lead us to Christ, so that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.